Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. is gone from myself welcome to the deconstructionist podcast i'm your host john williamson and we are back for part two with rabbi brad hirschfield hopefully you've listened to the first part uh if not pause and go back and listen to the first part so this part makes sense if you've already heard it then welcome back um i really really enjoyed my conversation uh with rabbi hirschfield um definitely more to come from him um, we've definitely got some, some ideas cooking on some things to work on, uh, together. And so this is just one of the fun byproducts of doing this sort of podcast is making friends, um, you know, through, through just reaching out and having guests come on and, and sometimes, uh, creative juices get, get flowing and you, you come up with some, some really fun ideas and you, something is birthed out of that kind of discussion. So very, very excited uh, to, to hear more from him, uh, in future episodes. So stay tuned for that. Uh, in the meanwhile, again, just as a reminder, don't freak out. Um, if you fast forward through the intros, then you might not know what's going on, but if you do listen to them, appreciate you. And, uh, this is the last episode of season 10. So take a, a month or two off and then we will be back with season 11 with brand new episodes. Some of which have already recorded, got some really cool ideas. I can't wait to share. So more to come. We'll be back very, 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 very soon. So uh, more to come there, like I said. But between now and then, uh, check out www.thedeconstructionist.com. You can go back and listen to our entire back catalog of episodes, link to social media on there, read our blog, link to our web store where you can get pint glasses, coffee mugs, T-shirts, and, and all sorts of stuff. You can also link to our Patreon if you want to support us there. Lots of cool packages. It just helps us financially to... Uh, you know, to basically fund the podcast. So um, that's about it. So thank you guys so much for listening. And without further ado, here's part two with Rabbi Brad Hirschfield, and we will see you back for season 11 very, very soon. Just a Do you even Because I am hopeless. Do you Wow, that's that's a God. That's such a good way to look at it. Um, and again, it, it goes back to the argument that we've made on this podcast over and over again: is that just because you identify with Christianity doesn't mean that there isn't absolute beauty in some of these other traditions that are absolutely worth knowing about and 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 looking into. And and it it makes it, I, I think, in this 
this is an argument I've made in terms of, uh, you know, the, the issue that we have in this country with racism is uh, I remember I got into a, a sort of a social media debate, as it were, with um, with an individual who I wasn't necessarily friends with, but I went to high school with. And I went to high school in a very, very small town and uh, not diverse. And I kept coming back to the fact that I kept saying to him, I said, I can't, I don't have the ability. I can't afford to hate these other people because I have, uh, through the journey of my life have ended up crossing paths and becoming friends with people who aren't like me and who don't look like me or think like me. And I know them at a heart level and, and, and love them dearly and can't imagine not being a part of their life. Uh, and so I can't afford to think that way anymore. I have to be inclusive. I don't have a choice, <laughs> you know? And I think you're right. And, and I want to, this may surprise you. It's another one of those things I don't use a lot. I actually don't talk a ton about inclusivity unless I can make the following statement. Every inclusive position necessarily excludes some people. Mm. Any principle, there's no such thing as being a principled person that includes everything. The fact of the matter is, as a traditional Jew, it is much easier for me to include Christianity and atheism than Buddhism or Hinduism. It doesn't mean there aren't truths to be found there. It just means that I accept that there are limits. Anyone who tells me that they have no limits on their inclusivity, they can't be principled people. Then inclusivity becomes their idolatry. But anyone who tells me that because of their deep commitment, they can't include anyone who isn't just like them, they've turned that faith into an idolatry. So for me, the rule of thumb is, do we have domains of loving relationship and acknowledgement of truth that are at least a little wider than where we choose to live? Doesn't have to be everything but just a little wider. By the way, even in Christian life, that would mean, imagine, forget all this other stuff. Imagine what would happen if progressive Christians and conservative Christians could just treat each other that way. How many families would be healed? How many people would talk to each other? How many people would go to Christmas dinner together, even if they could not worship? And I'm not saying will not, could not worship in the same church. As a matter of principle, no, I cannot worship there. But I can break bread with you. Because even though we don't agree, somehow our disagreement is in Christ. And that's got to be counting for something. So again, I don't believe that inclusivity is ever infinite. And I don't believe it solves every problem, but I regularly invite myself and others, just let your zone of truth and your zone of love be a little bit bigger and wider than your zone of correctness. I like that. And it, it, it makes me think it kind of brings me back to this idea that um, even if I can't bring myself to worship with someone at their particular church, it, it kind of comes back to the meal, the function of the meal and, and breaking bread with someone, so to speak. Um, we can all do that. You know, that's something right. we can and do. And the last time I checked <laughs> in both classical rabbinic Judaism and Christianity, our founders kind of knew that. 
<laughs> yes. Yes, they did. Right? It, you don't have to go too far on a limb. By the way, and then we can have all the debates about rabbis, what's kosher, what's not kosher. With Christians, what is exactly happening with the bread and the wine? I, I get it. I, I, it's not that I think they're all the same understandings. I absolutely respect that I have not traditionally observant you know, Jewish peers who, like I grew up, could celebrate a Sabbath meal, and no, they're not at all interested in it being kosher. Just like the food at my family table growing up, we had Shabbat, Sabbath, Friday night dinner, religiously. But the idea that it would be kosher was like cuckoo. No one did that. And now I can't, it's been, you know, since I'm then 12 years old, and I'm now 59, I've always kept kosher. So it's not that there can't be differences. It's not that there can't be differences when someone you know, observes, you know, the, the Lord's Supper, what they think they're actually consuming. But don't let the differences be the, it's not that you should get rid of them. But don't let noticing the differences keep you from appreciating that we are also in this together. Yeah, yeah, that's, uh, that's true. Uh, one of the things I think that um, I would be interested in talking with you about is also, um, I think within Christianity, I think because it's, you know, most of the people listening, you know, come from that tradition, know that, you know, we have, I think last I checked, something like 45,000 different denominations in North America alone. So 45,000 different interpretations of the same, you know, so similarly true, uh, maybe not as many, but similarly true that there are different streams of thought within right. Judaism. And, but uh, I think a lot of people don't know that either. They just think Judaism is Judaism is Judaism. Talk a little bit about like, what are the, some of the differences there? And well, one of yeah. the interesting things is, and this is, this really is a departure from any expression of Christian faith, right? If you ask someone, what do you call a Christian who in no way, right, from the most kind of Unitarian Universalist posture to the most conservative Orthodox, you know, Catholic position, would say, no, 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 I have no relationship with Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter. It's irrelevant. What would you call a Christian who takes that, well, I don't know, but you wouldn't call them Christians, right? That's okay, but at (laughs) some point, that's not. Interestingly, though, what would you call a Jew who doesn't believe in, in any way, shape, or form, God. You would call them a secular Jew. See, that's the interesting thing, is the first thing to remember is that Judaism, in all or any of its permutations, is not fundamentally, no pun intended, a faith. It's a family. And that is one of the luxuries that Jewish tradition, since the time of Abraham, in all of its permutations has afforded. Because once you know it's a family, you may actually say, I have nothing to do with the religion called Judaism, but I'm a member of the Jewish family. That's a little bit harder in my experience in all the streams of Christianity that are out there to say, I have no relationship with Christianity, but I'm a Christian. So already I have a certain latitude because I can invoke, and by the way, Fully 50% of American Jews consider themselves cultural Jews, not religious Jews. And yet 95% of Jews in America say their Jewishness is a source of pride. 
which means you have millions of people who go, I have no interest in religion, and I'm proudly Jewish. Now, I want to be clear. We are family first. My personal belief is that families do better with faith. I'm pretty, again, forgive the phrase, agnostic about the nature of the faith, but I do believe that families do better when they're grounded in some kind of faith. So now that we've kind of explained how you can have roughly six-plus million North American Jews, of whom at least half say, I have nothing to do with religion, but I'm Jewish because it's a family, you then have different denominations, though even that word is weird because denominations are a model from the Protestant world that Judaism never knew. And that's in part because until, you know, really the last, you can put it, 75 years since the end of World War II and and the rising of the state of Israel, you can push it all the way back to Napoleon and the emancipation of European Jewry or somewhere in between there. Jews didn't decide who was Jewish. I mean, we thought we did, and the rabbis debated it, but Jews didn't control who was Jewish. The Christians and the Muslims among whom we live told us who we were. And so a lot of the discussion about what counts as Jewish is relatively new, because in the end, it was the Gentiles among whom we lived who decided for us, we think you're a Jew. We don't give a damn what you believe. We've decided you're a Jew, so go live over there. So you have some of that that's in play also. Now, with all of that, there are still these denominational structures that did get adopted, actually first by Reform and Conservative Judaism, not surprisingly, these are the, they are denominations that rose in the 19th century, in the 18th century a bit, but not really, in the 19th century, primarily in Northern Europe, especially in Germany, no big surprise, the birthplace of Protestantism, where denominational independence was a very important thing. And so you have a reform movement that has gone through its own permutations, and a conservative movement, orthodoxy, is actually not a denomination at all. And here's the funny thing. There is greater diversity in the range of what counts as orthodox than there is in the other denominations. Because orthodoxy can hold everything from me, who even to many of my teachers, I'm a heretic already, all the way over (laughs) to Hasidic Jews who would say everything, all right, 95% of what Brad has said to this moment is ridiculous and stupid. There is one God, he... It's important that it's he, gave one Torah, we understand what it means, and everything else is a lie. And all of that range can locate itself within orthodoxy. Because, and the, even the term orthodox was only a response to reform, because traditional Jews needed to call themselves something, because again, in Northern Europe, if you weren't part of a denomination, you were nothing. And so, What typically defines those who call themselves Orthodox, and again, I'm not a representative of anyone. I mean, that's the the old adage about two Jews, three opinions is absolutely true. So anytime someone says, I'm representing (laughs) Judaism, run, don't walk. And by the way, I don't mean that cynically. I think it's one of the great strengths of the Jewish family is to not have a strongly dogmatic tradition. Now, again, if you're fully defined by faith, it's probably a luxury you can't afford. If you're a family first, you can get away with it. We've been a family, so we can get away with it. It creates all kinds of fuzziness, but it has its gifts, as you can see. 
what typically defines people who would call themselves Orthodox, if I had to get it down to a couple of propositions, because now we are in the domain of religion, they are people who believe in a personal God. They are people who believe that in one way or another, God's will is revealed to the Jewish people through God's teaching, which is literally what the word Torah and subsequent tradition mean. And they are people whose lives are animated by a serious relationship with Jewish law as the structurer of daily practice. Now, that's a wide range. But those are the propositions. Conservative Judaism, which really grew up as a response to reform, so I should do that first, which starts to come on the scene in Germany, really in the, as I said, the late 18th century, but in a robust way in the early 19th century, originally was founded and said, we are neither ethnic nor legal. We are an ethical community. And the first German Reformed Jews, in many ways, modeled themselves quite consciously after their Lutheran neighbors. And they did spend a lot of time on dogma and doctrine, because it really was, you know, the, the, this is not rule-based. This was very much about a kind, that's why they seized on the prophetic tradition. It was a post-legal Jewishness. It was very synagogue-driven. It was very faith-driven. That's not where most Reformed Jews are today. We'll get to that. The conservative movement came up as kind of a response to both, drawing on the historical evolutionary themes that Reformed Judaism was championing, and a deep connection to Jewish practice, largely but not exclusively mediated through Jewish law. Now, if you ask me where I kind of see what's going on in contemporary American Judaism today, I don't think, with all due respect, the denominations should all live and be well. I don't think they're actually going to get the job done for most Jews. I think the majority of Jews are cultural Jews and are looking to thousands of years of our people's spiritual and intellectual tradition to help them lead better lives personally and familially, to provide the tools to build those lives and to make a contribution to the world in which we live, both the Jewish world and the general world. And they're not really, I don't think, synagogue and Hebrew school, I don't think those are the things that are going to do it for them. But in no way do I minimize the depth of their Jewish passion. Then I think you have, you know, kind of the liberal denominations, reform, reconstructionist, which we didn't talk about, and conservative. And their sociology looks much like contemporary liberal mainline Protestant Christianity. It is an aging population. It is an intermarrying population. It is it has a almost exclusively politically liberal personality. Um, so in many ways it has become narrower, not wider, because it's liberalism, but that's the that's the echo chambering and siloing of America. Orthodoxy has moved, again, not surprisingly, because in the end, American Jews, because America's been good for Jews, don't look so different from our Christian neighbors. So if you want to know what the social trends are in Judaism, just look at Christianity 20 years ago, That's and that's where we're going, has moved consistently to the right. 
has become more hostile to public culture, more fearful, more culturally and intellectually conservative, all the same patterns which you know and know from the Christian world. You could say, wow, Brad, sounds terribly depressing. It's not depressing at all, because remember, all of those squabbles and trends don't cover 50% of people who say they're Jewish. Which means we are witnessing the birthing of all kinds of new ways to Jew, and as your work proves, all kinds of new ways to Christian. How many people listening to your show is listening to, I'm not saying good or bad, we'll talk about that, but for how many of them is this, they're going to church? Mm. Now, I still like my synagogue and I like going to church when I go with friends. So I'm not suggesting, therefore, get rid of synagogues and churches. I'm not. But I have to take seriously the devoted followings that are created by venues like this and the way in which it is birthing new alternatives to old religion and old atheism and instead saying, you know what? We deserve more and we deserve better. And if we're willing to put in the time, it's there for us. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Yeah, it, it, it's an interesting time uh, to, to be alive. It, you know, it, I, I recall several years ago now talking to a um, Christian theologian and asked the question, you know, does it, because it, it feels to me uh, that, the, that the Christian church in America specifically, but the church at large, I think, is going through another kind of reformation period where what was once can you know once considered you know uh church for you know for our prior generation is not good enough for this current generation um and in a lot of ways i see it as a, as a 
longing for authenticity. And this younger generation is, I, I think, um, oftentimes underestimated in a lot of ways. I think they're very smart. I, I think they're very hungry. I, I think they're not in a position where they want to completely give up on, on religion per se. I think they're looking for something that, you know, like practices what we preach, you know, and isn't, I think they see the hypocrisy, especially because I know you deal with this too, sort of this strange marriage that has uh, occurred, you know, decades ago, but we're really now seeing kind of the, the fruits of that between politics and religion, you know, specifically in this country. And they see the hypocrisy there. They see how we say one thing and do another, um, at least within Christianity here. It may be true for Judaism as well. I don't know, but I think they're, they're hungry for something. And I think you're right. I think out of that hunger comes this sort of evolution into whatever this thing's going to be now. I don't right. know. I don't but... pretend to know. And I try and balance my <laughs> yeah. incredible optimism with a healthy amount of, mm. you may be wrong. It may be falling apart. The conservatives may all be correct in that regard. I, but I, I admit, I don't know. <laughs> and here's the reason I could not agree with you more. The fastest growing demographic in this country are the nuns. And I don't mean Catholic religious women. I mean N-O-N-E-S. Right. <laughs> now, here's right. the interesting thing. The metrics, the numbers in the last 15 years on atheists and agnostics have barely changed. Barely changed. The nuns, this burgeoning mass of, you know, tens of millions of people. It's not that they're running to substitute an ideology, since it's America, mostly Christian, for atheism or agnosticism. So I don't believe, and I don't think the nuns believe, that to be a nun is to be nothing. I think what the nuns believe is that Mr. and Mrs. Demographer your checklist boxes can't possibly contain the complexity of my soul. And so when you give me, and I get it, it's demographically necessary if you're a Pew or a Lily or whatever, when you measure, are you Jewish? If Jewish, are you Orthodox, Reform, right? Are you Christian? If Christian, are you Catholic or Protestant? If Protestant, are you mainline or evangelical? If evangelical, are you these denominations or are you non-denominational? I, I get all the ways in which that can give us useful data. I also know all the ways it misses some of the most important data because people's souls are more complicated than the content of those boxes. And I think the best way to understand and to remind ourselves, the nuns are not nothing. The nuns are looking for new menu items, for new boxes, to combine them in ways that I get may freak some of us out, may freak me out. But the fact that it freaks me out doesn't mean it can't possibly be right. The fact is, every faith today freaked someone out when it got founded. Jesus freaked a lot of people out. <laughs> Moses freaked a lot of people out. Muhammad freaked a lot of people out. Abraham and Sarah freaked a lot of people out. So it's okay to say, I'm freaked out, I want nothing to do with it. 
But to pretend you know that because it freaks you out, it can't possibly be right means you don't think you're a person. You think you're God and you can see till the end of time. And then we have a whole separate set of problems we got to talk about. So <laughs> yes, what I know from the trend line is the hunger is real. And what I think many of us who are religious leaders and institutional leaders, we confuse people's disinterest in what interests us with being disinterested in faith and spirituality. And the analogy I would make is, it would be like opening a restaurant and putting the menu on the door, as many restaurants do, and seeing people come to the restaurant door and looking at the menu and walking away. And they're going, you see, I told you they weren't hungry. As opposed to saying, you know, I wonder if they're just not hungry for what we thought they should eat. Wow. Uh, so I, I, I realize we're uh, we're already getting to the end of our time, which is unbelievable. Um, I, I could listen to you talk for hours, but... Um, what I think what might be interesting too for our listeners is to talk about maybe perhaps a miscon a common misconception you find uh, between our sort of sister religions because obviously without Judaism there would be no Christianity and I I find it hilarious sometimes that I have to remind people that um, we didn't write the Bi Christians didn't write the Bible because they didn't right. exist yet <laughs> Jews wrote the Bible come on <laughs> so first of all I love that you use the phrase sisters, and I'm going to lean into it, because although two popes, and it makes Jews very happy, and not a small number of, of, <laughs> of, of Protestant theologians have described Judaism as the elder sibling, it's actually historically not true. Hmm. The truth is, rabbinic Judaism and Christianity are the twin children of the same mom, and the mom is the Hebrew Bible or the Old Testament. We grew up together, and, you know, the relationship between twins, and we can now spend time looking at Jacob and Esau or other things, but the relationship, or our own families, the relationships between twins are often incredibly fraught and incredibly close. We're twins, and so what I would invite people on both sides of this is it's not who got here first. In the end, everything I know and every study I've seen about twins forging their identities requires two things. A real and discreet sense of their independence and a real and discreet understanding and appreciation of their interdependence. And I think what happens is we typically have people who are very into the interdependence and actually don't know what to do about the independence, and people who, because of their, the deep wisdom of independence, are really very scared of the interdependence. And I'm sure it's a mix, and I'm sure it's a different kind of mix for different people. But I think the one thing I would invite people to try and remember is they're both true. We really are independent, they're not the same, and we are truly interdependent as only twins can be. And 
we have a shot at working that out in 21st century America and in ways that actually no generation ever has. And that's confusing and it can be threatening and it definitely upsets all kinds of institutional relations and stuff. And I get that. And, you know, and you and I are blessed because we can run our lives in a way that makes the most of that upheaval. And I know that not everyone can. So I take it seriously. I would just try and remind myself and others that we're really quite blessed because this is an upheaval that's happening by and large. I admit I have some concerns moving forward, but by and large, without violence. Certainly with less violence than it has in the past centuries. And so can we start by owning that both some people are really freaked out because a lot is changing and it's happening faster than anyone can see. And by the way, I would say that to both progressives and conservatives. When conservatives say they know the sky is falling and it's all falling apart, I'm like, how do you know? And when progressives say, oh, we can just, that's Oz is right there. We understand perfectly what God's will is. I say, you know, it's funny. You sound just like the people you hate. What if we actually admitted that we're on a journey whose trajectory we know, but we don't know its end point? We know the general direction we're heading. And for me, that's, I can root it, if I'm allowed to actually be overtly biblical, in the Abraham story, when in Genesis 12, Abraham is told, in you, the people of the world will be blessed. Which means the Jewish journey is founded in the notion that I can't just be a blessing to myself and to my people. I've got to be a blessing to myself and to my people in a way that other people in the world feel blessed by our presence. And if you want to go back even further, Adam and Eve, and no, I'm not taking a position on the facticity of that story. (laughs) Adam and Eve were not Jews. And they weren't Christians, and they weren't Muslims, and they weren't Buddhists or Hindus. And they certainly weren't atheists or agnostics because they're talking to someone who they think of as God. (laughs) What they were was human beings. And the first thing we're told about them is they are created in the image of God. And I know this much. We can fight about whether there is a God or there isn't. For me, yes. But I can't go to a blackboard and prove it. But absolutely yes for me. But I know what we can't fight about is that all human beings, whoever they are, are created in the image of that God in whom some of us believe and some of us don't. And if we actually treated each other in light of that fact, if we actually had debates about God or religion or respective churches or denominations in light of that fact, have the debates, have the fights, they're real, they're differences, they are real differences and they need to be thrashed out. I would just remind myself and everyone else, have them in a way that everyone understands that combatants in those cultural and theological fights actually made everyone who's a party to them feel like they are more in the image of God, not less.
I don't know a better way <laughs> to end this podcast. Wow. Thank you so much. Uh, this is an absolute thrill for me. And um, what a what a beautiful way to, to uh, end our time Thank together. You. Thank it's you a, so but much. You radiate the warmth that makes it worthwhile. And anytime you want or need anything, on air, off air, and I'm saying it this way so if it's recorded, you have evidence, really, on air, off air, <laughs> mo- any way you need, you have. I promise. I'm, Please, I'm taking you up on that. It would be my honor sure. and my joy. It really would, John. <laughs> Oh, absolutely. Well, you know, I, you know, our goals are, are very much the same. I, I, uh, I hope that, uh, in reality and symbolically that, uh, that, that all people can, can sit at the same table and share a meal together. Amen. I really do.
Mother's Day is almost here, and you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around. A watch she can wear every day for movement. Whether mom's into classic dress watches, rare and refined ceramics, or tried-and-true bestsellers, movement has something she'll love. And right now, you can save big on the best Mother's Day gift ever with up to 50% off site-wide during movement's Mother's Day sale at MVMT.com. Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com.